Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live across the world on the internet at MichaelDukeShow.com. And across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or... FM Translator. Hello and good morning. Welcome to the program. It is Monday. Monday, Monday. Oh, Monday. Why hast thou forsaken me? Um, yeah, it's it's that day of the week. And ooh, baby. Came a little too early. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Came a little too early today, but we're gonna have to deal with it because we're adults and we have to adult. Uh, in the best way possible. Hello and good morning and welcome to the program. Uh, We are officially three days away from the end of the regular session here in the legislature. And uh, wow, it, uh, I mean, I hate to say I told you so, but uh, who am I kidding? No, I don't. I told you so. This is where we get the sticky shaft, the sticky end of the lollipop. This is where we get screwed, people. This is what I'm talking about. Screwed. Yeah, um, it was uh, an interesting Friday, to say the least. Uh, I was getting... uh, I was getting updates from uh, uh, from some of the staffers and folks in the legislature. I, my phone was blowing up on uh, Friday as things uh, got a little nasty down there in the uh, in the legislature. And we're going to talk just a bit about that here this morning uh, to begin with, with some of the headlines. Uh, and then uh, in hour two, we'll get the full rundown <clears throat> from uh, Representative Ben Carpenter who is chair of the Ways and Means Committee and uh, arguably the uh, arguably the uh, uh, the chief architect uh, architect of the proposed fiscal plan for the state of Alaska. Uh, Although, uh, I don't know, he probably feels more like the the probably feels more like the guy who was at the helm of the Titanic uh, at this point, because things is is coming the wheels is coming off the bus my friend it's not looking pretty um essentially yeah there's going to be a special session it's just gonna that's just how it's gonna be there's gonna be a special session and it's gonna get uh it's gonna get ugly uh we've uh we've got some details on that and we're gonna talk about that but specifically the house uh majority has kind of come unstuck. Um, <clears throat> the majority itself, uh, there were a bunch of disagreements on the floor on Friday. Uh, Sarah Vance tried to uh, bring out a bill uh, on Friday that was uh, basically submarined by a bunch of folks. Um, it was the uh, it was a floor fight 
over a House bill that was uh, to ban Israeli boycotts, uh, and it sparked this fight uh, on the floor. And that was just the that was just the first uh, salvo in uh, what ended up being a fight in and of itself over the long term fiscal plan um, uh, over the budget, uh, including a bunch of amendments to the spending cap, which was in the uh, House Finance Committee. Uh, It would have, in part, um, allowed the legislature to appropriate more money by putting the permanent fund dividend, which had previously been excluded from the cap, uh, under the cap itself, which would have raised the ceiling on what they could actually spend Upwards of a billion dollars. It could increase the spending cap by a billion, a, a billion, one billion dollars. And uh, it, it was just, I mean, it was just a mess. Uh, Carpenter uh, then declared that because of the amendments to the spending cap, he would not allow the House Ways and Means Committee to vote on his tax bill, which would have reduced the corporate income tax. Uh, it would also impose a new sales tax. And uh, he says, I'm very hesitant to send a revenue-generating measure to the rest of the body who's unwilling to instill any sort of fiscal discipline in ourselves with an effective spending limit. He wants to continue having the conversation about a fiscal plan and putting the state on the right path, but it does not include passing a spending limit that would not be effective and allow us to grow our operating budget by a billion dollars next year. Uh, I mean, this whole thing is just... You, you could see what's going on. And in part, it was due to, I think, uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, kind of that mm, semi-coup from the rural members. Bryce Edgmond, um had raised concerns about the spending cap, but you also had Will Stapp in there who sponsored the amendments to that spending cap, um, which was his original bill to begin with. So I just I just don't even know at this point. But the House... House has its own problems, and then you add to that the fact that that uh, we got it. You knew it was coming. The turducken, the turducken, the the. Oh man! <laughs> they held on to it. They held on to the bill for a long time, um, and they did it intentionally. That's the that's the bottom line. The they did it intentionally, and uh, okay, I, I don't want to get too far into this here for a few minutes because I had to mention the fact that we also have Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum joining us this morning to talk about the education components and the Alaska Read Act and the 175 million dollars that's been included in the Senate's fund for education and <clears throat> more. That's uh, that's what we got going on this morning. All right. Where do I even where do I even pick up? Uh, I guess we could go back to the turducken, uh, which I had to laugh hysterically because that's um, that's exactly what the the uh, the Alaska Beacon actually picked up the uh, the quote uh, of the turducken and actually uses it in their article. But that's what's going on. Um and and that and and good job, uh, James Brooks from the Alaska Beacon, for actually calling out how unusual this has become. Um, that normally, 
you know, there's a process. And unfortunately, they have uh, the Senate has decided to abrogate that process. Remember when I said that the Senate was going to play these games and then they were going to try and blame the uh, they were going to try and blame the uh, the House for any kind of potential shutdown. They're trying, but uh, it seems like, well, at least James Brooks is pointing out how this really falls back on the Senate. Uh, He says in his article, normally senators would advance their proposal and the disagreement on the dividend and other similar items would result in the creation of a committee charged with writing a a compromise. That would be the conference committee. That didn't happen. The budget remained in Senate's finance committee for almost a month, irritating members of the House. In April, the Senate circulated a draft schedule that promised action in early May, but that draft was disregarded within weeks. When asked at the start of this month why the Finance Committee was holding on to the budget, Stedman replied, flexibility. Here's James Brooks's comment on that. If so, it's the kind of flexibility exhibited by a fishing rod in the hands of someone you fighting a king salmon. Stedman has a years-old reputation as an expert in legislative maneuvering, and the Senate's actions have disgruntled members of the House majority. Will Stapp said, I'm not happy about a turducken budget. From a procedural point of view, both bodies are supposed to have a say in the committee um, in that regard. But no, they they are not interested at all. This is how they did it. This is how they did it. They they used time compression as a weapon. What did I say? I said they're going to let something come out on Friday. I thought they were going to let the budget out on Friday. And they did. And it's a turducken. And it's a big screw you to everybody else. It's a simple up and down vote. They put the comp, they put the capital budget inside the operating budget, and then they released it and said, <clears throat> take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. They that's that's what it's all about. A, the result is a single $6.3 billion omnibus bill that would fund state services for 12 months. Then Gary Stevens had the gall to say, time is running out for the legislative session to end within the constitutional limits, but it has not run out yet. Well, because you guys ran it out. The window for the conference committee, by the way, this is Bert Stedman. The window for the conference committee came and closed. And the finance committee co-chairs now, he he was the one that closed it. He was the one that allowed it to, to, to run on. So... I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's just like the, the, wow, the brass ones on this guy. Uh, Stevens agreed and said, unfortunately, the time has passed when we could have had a conference committee. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't continue to negotiate. The time has come because you guys refuse to really, you have had your budget in house finance for almost a month. The capital and operating budget have been in Stedman's committee for almost a month, which has left some House lawmakers demanding to see the bill. Now, with time running out, the Senate is preparing a take-it-or-leave-it approach, an up-or-down vote on whether to agree with the Senate plan or not. It's going to be a no. It's going... I mean, that's... (laughs) Oh, my God. Again, the big... Just the... Just the... I can look you in the I can look at the camera and lie right to your face. Well, this is all in the house for they they've got to vote up or down. I mean, the time has come. The time for any kind of negotiations is closed. So do what we say or else.
I mean, this is just, it's insanity. But again, I told you so. This is what was going to happen. This is how it was going to work. This is exactly what this is working as intended. It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a feature. Yes. It's a turd duckin. Not a turd duckin. It's a turd duckin. It smells like poo and probably tastes worse. I mean, that's what it's all about right now. This is just, it's insanity. Um, but they're going to try and blame this all on the house because now they're going to say, well, the house has got it. They just got to vote up or down. Well, that's not quite how it works. And maybe some people will see that. I think, again, I, I, I have to put, take my hat off to James Brooks. He's actually calling out parts of this situation and saying, well, if the shutdown is, I mean, the Senate is the one that's trying to force the issue at this point. They held on to this thing for over a month. Well, almost a month. I guess I shouldn't. I don't want to overstate it. And they got Kathy Tilden quoted here saying, we feel like we're being cut out of the process. Well, yeah, that's the whole point, isn't it? The whole point is that you're being cut out of the process. It's on purpose. That's what that's what it is. It's on purpose. Oh, by the way, they also slipped in an additional uh, adding fuel to that. The Senate budget uh, budgeters also wedged 40 million dollars into the budget to account for extra state employee leave that may be cashed out in the event of a state shutdown. So they, they already knew. They already, they already knew. Again, it's like they're almost, it's like they're almost doing it on purpose, right? They knew exactly what's going on. They're going to get there. That's just how it is. Too bad we can't play hardball the same way, huh? Yeah. I, uh... I, I think it's right. I think the, it's, again, I told you so. It's exactly what it was going to happen. All right. Um, out of time. We got more coming up. Sarah Montalbano up next to talk about education and the Alaska Reads Act. Representative Ben Carpenter in hour or two. We'll be back. The Michael Luke Show. Common Sense Radio. Regularly heard on American radio. I mean, are you surprised? Are you not entertained? Are you not surprised and entertained by the insane? I mean, this is, I called this, right? I mean, last week I said, they're going to drop something. It'll be Thursday, Friday. They're going to drop it. They're going to force them right against the wall. And they're going to say, hey, it's your mess. You guys go deal with it. Now it's going to be your fault if nothing passes. Thank goodness. I mean, Brooks at least points it out. The fact that they've been sitting on this for a month. It's time compression as a weapon. This is a classic, classic Burt Stedman ploy. And in fact, again, uh, Brooks says something about, um, what did he say about, uh, Stedman being a, basically a wily old bastard kind of thing. Um, 
when asked for, yeah, again, Stedman has a years old reputation as an expert in legislative maneuvering and this, which we called strong arming, right. And extortion. He's a great blackmailer. He can, he can really put the pressure on exactly where it needs to be. And exactly on the, the I mean, oh, man, it's Monday. I mean, how do you get rid of that? How do you get rid of a Stedman when his whole community's like, oh, we love him. We think he's great. And they won't. I mean, you can't. Now, I heard rumors that somebody said that they were talking about putting somebody up against him that is, um, you know, worth a poo. But um, I mean, who knows? Who actually knows? All right. Well, we'll we'll we're going to we're going to move off of that subject for a moment. Because I see a cheerful young lady in the green room. Let's go over here to uh, Sarah Montabano from Alaska Policy Forum and see what she's got going on. Hello, good morning. Good morning. How are you on this Monday? You know, it's it's Monday. I mean, you know, come <laughs> on. It's you know, it's it's. I'm okay. I'm okay. How about you? How's life been treating you? Are you you ready to go? Good. Yeah. Hectic time of year as always, but. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. enjoying it every minute. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about the Alaska Reads Act. And, of course, the Senate also, they f- they put that $178 million into the – and, and I, I, I can't remember in that last final version if it's a per student or if it's just flat funding. But if you have anything you want to comment on that as well, we can do that uh, as well um, sure. and, and go through it. But uh, we're ready to talk about stuff, so – um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm still, I'm not, I mean, I, I was expecting it, but it's still a little shocking, right? I mean, I was expecting it to happen, but the brazenness of, uh, oh, here's a hand grenade. You hold on to that. And if you drop it, it's your fault. I, I know I've got the pin over here, but no big deal. Uh, that's, uh, that's politics as normal. It seems like, uh, in this day and age. Um, all right. So you're Monday. I'm Monday. We're all we're all Monday today, so we're ready yeah. to go. All right. So hold the line. I'm Absolutely. gonna be I'm gonna be right back to you. We're gonna put you back in the green room for a second. Um, I mean, Terry says, "What a crappy way to start the week." I mean, that's that's what it is. Uh, Kevin says, "Every single minority amendment that the House prevented from passing in the House budget, the Senate put back in." Yeah. I mean, I mean, are we are we surprised? He says the House is just a 40 member advisory committee. Not surprising. Not shocking. Not shocking in the least. This is exactly what it's all about. Um, I mean, this goes right back to where we were right back to where we were before. If not. I mean. (sighs) Again, I, I guess I'm, I'm just I'm not surprised, but I'm just that the the balls on these people to again just pull the pin on the grenade and hand it to somebody and say, oh, be a shame if you drop that thing, be an absolute shame if you drop that thing." Yeah, I got that, got that all together. All right, here we go. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. Let's get to it, my friend, shall we? Uh, Share, do the thing, subscribe. I've done all that. Ring the bell. All right, here we go. Jumping into it. Let's do it. 
Okay, Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum is uh, our education. She is our official, we should give her a t-shirt or something. She is our official <laughs> education expert here uh, on the program. She's the uh, educational policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. And uh, she's going to come in today. We're going to talk about a few things, including... Uh, the Alaska Reads Act, and pretty much any other question that I ask for her. That's going to be the topic. That's how it's going to work. But we'll start off with the stuff that she actually prepped for. I mean, I hate to just drop her into the deep end of the pool, but she can handle it. She's a good swimmer. Uh, let's get things going on. Good morning, my dear. How are you this morning? Good morning. Yeah, doing pretty well. Yeah, it's Monday again. I keep thinking I should change my last name to something that starts with an F so right, I can do it I on Fridays. Yeah, it'll be Fontalbano Fridays, right? Or something like that. <laughs> exactly. So she didn't have to do this first thing on a Monday morning. Um, all right. Well, uh, the state of education, obviously, we're not quite through the session and uh, we've still got things up in the air. But one of the things you wanted to discuss is... Um, the uh, the Alaska Reads Act, obviously being part of, uh, you know, what we've got going on. So, you know, let, give us give us a rundown of the stuff that you want to cover before I jump into my end of it here. Absolutely. Uh, the Alaska Reads Act thankfully passed last session and it's going into effect in the 2023-2024 school year. Um, the reason it's so important is that it's it's emulating uh, best practices from Florida and Mississippi, uh, both states that have seen really incredible gains in reading proficiency. And uh, Alaska has had problems with reading for a very long time. We've always been really close to the bottom on the National Assessment of Educational Progress ever since 2003 when it started up. Um, but these pandemic learning losses after 2020 really made it clear that we needed to do something, that we needed to put the infrastructure in place so that students in public schools and outside of them are actually learning how to read because we have just terrible reading proficiency. I'm sorry, but it is true. And and all of these skills are so important for kids to learn right. uh, before they get to fourth grade. Well, well uh, and you, let's I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you and yeah, I apologize, but the, I was staggered. And this is a national phenomenon. This is not just mm -hmm. an Alaska phenomenon, but the pandemic, Absolutely. the pandemic loss. And I mean, the educational loss during the pandemic, the numbers are staggering as to how many kids fell behind because a lot of times these are, I mean, these, these skills are, um, are very, um, they, they can expire, especially if you're not using them, if you're not pushing them forward and the amount of learning times that kids lost and the slippage in the scores across the country, let alone here where we were already at the bottom of the heap, but across, across the country have been, they were, they were astonishing. It really was. And one of the things that are, is a bright point is that Florida and Mississippi, because they had this infrastructure in place, they only lost a little bit. Other states were losing months and months of reading proficiency from sending kids home and uh, doing things in an unprepared online environment. Uh, but they actually did pretty well, all things considered. Um, so it's it's really important to be following this kind of science of reading and teaching basic reading. And that's it's one of the most important things that you can do in elementary school education. It's it's the building block everything else rests on. Right. Um, so because those kids were prepared, they did better uh, in this kind of pandemic situation where schools were closed very abruptly right so um here we set the alaska reads act again emulating what's happening in florida 
So, I mean, do we have all the parts and pieces in line? What's going on with it now that it's it's passed, it's ready to be implemented? Where mm-hmm. where do we go from here? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I really do think that the Department of Education and Early Development, DEED, uh, DEED has done a really good job in supporting school districts so far. Uh, teachers, I think, were really worried about having an unfunded and unsupported a mandate for reading proficiency, but they're getting a lot of support. Um, It really does seem to follow best practices. Uh, In most cases, I'll I'll point out one where it doesn't, uh, from Florida and Mississippi, uh, that you need to train teachers in the science of reading. Uh, You need to provide uh, support for some of these really low performing schools. Um, You have screeners and intensive intervention for kids that are identified at risk for reading deficiency. Uh, and you have small group interventions, you're involving parents along the way. And then finally, there's a discussion about third grade promotion. If your child has been receiving these interventions and still isn't proficient at the end of third grade. And these are all, again, best practices coming out of Florida. But you said in one instance, we're not following it. Is this uh, intuitive or is it I mean, what's going on? What's wh- where are we? Where are we steering clear of the blueprint that's worked? Yeah, so this is one portion of the bill and well, the law, and I I only caught it because I was reading it pretty carefully. And it's that the Alaska Reads Act requires an early literacy screener and a dyslexia screener uh, to be administered to all students in the fall. That's a best practice. That's a good thing. Uh, Where the Alaska Reads Act deviates is that there's uh, for the winter and spring, you're supposed to administer to all students again three times a year. Uh, so you can catch them really fast if if a student has fallen off in the middle of the year. They've they've somehow become at risk of of a, a deficiency. And so what the Alaska Reads Act does is it says you know it's optional that you have to administer it in the winter and the spring to all students. You only have to. You're only required to administer it to those students that uh, were identified as potentially deficient in the fall and are getting those intensive interventions. So I think it's really important that as many school districts as possible try to do this screener in the winter and the spring for all students as well, because kids can fall off the bandwagon in the middle of the year. Um, You're obviously catching all the kids who lost some proficiency over the summer when you hit the fall, but there's also circumstances in which kids will be proficient in the fall and not in the winter and spring. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate because, again, the idea here is is that, uh, you know, obviously, as you said, it's a, you know, it's a dated skill. If it's not used, it falls, you know, kind of falls away. Uh, but if if you're not catching it at the end of this at the end of the uh, school year, middle or end of the school year, I mean, they're even further behind then by the time you have the whole summer lapse and everything else. And I agree with you. I think I think reading is I mean, the one skill that I am um, that I remember being uh, most happy with the one that served me the best really has been my reading proficiency over the years. I mean, I was okay at math, you know, never great. Uh, I was okay at science and everything else, but I loved reading. I loved literature and that helped develop my love of learning. And I think many kids are like that. So one thing that I definitely instilled in every one of my children was that kind of that love of reading kind of thing. And it, it's got to be done, but we read at such a I mean, I read something, and it's not just an Alaska thing, but uh, across the country that you've got all these high school students that 
Most of them hardly can read at regular grade school level, let alone high school level or college level. And that's that's kind of scary when you, you're releasing them into the world that way. Absolutely. So many U.S. adults are functionally illiterate. And that's that's a really scary uh, position for our society, um, not just because people don't choose to learn, but it's like you've got so many functions in basic life where you need to be able to read some things and the way that kids have been right. taught historically is to um, use this kind of balanced language approach or this whole language approach where you're looking at the whole words you're looking at context um, in grade school you're looking at pictures to figure out what a word might be right and sometimes you're just skipping altogether. Um, so i think really this science of reading has it's resurged because of this kind of pandemic interest uh, in actually following best practices because education research has known for a while uh, what it takes to get a kid to read. But education pedagogy, uh, for lack of a better word, has just not kept up. Teachers in education colleges have not been taught this uh, until fairly recently. It's it's interesting. It's I can't remarkable. I can't remember the last time that I used algebra or, you know, some of these other sciences, but you use reading like you said in everyday life and every yes. every component and if you're functionally illiterate in today's society, especially with the amount of money that we expend on education in this country, let alone in this state, um I mean, that's just a sad state of affairs when you've got people coming out of high school that can barely read or write. Uh, and I've seen, I mean, I've had personal experience with people who, uh, you know, trying to hire some folks and things like that. And it's just like, wow. I mean, did you not pick up a book? Did you not, you know, it's, it's, and, and I don't mean to, to talk, demean them or talk down to yeah. them. It's a, it's a system failure, but at some point, how can we even, how can we look ourselves in the eye and say, oh, this is great. We're, we're doing a good job. And these kids can barely read a, uh, you know, it's when McDonald's, instead of putting words on the cash register, now they put pictures on the cash register because the kids can't read the damn words on the, on the, they can't read Big Mac or double quarter pounder with cheese. They can see a picture and they can push the button. That's a, that's a rough, that's a rough deal. It's a really scary situation to be in. And we spend so much as a nation on dropout prevention and remedial classes once these kids take college, if that's what they decide to do. Um, that it's just like we are we are punting this skill that should have been really well taught in elementary school. Kids struggle from fourth grade to through the end of high school, not understanding maybe half of the material, maybe even most of it in math and science and civics, history. All of these subjects, they're not learning that either because they can't read the material. Uh, so it's it's one of those things that really cascades in its effects down into the workforce, into right. uh, just just daily life. I just I use it every day. Right. Well, I haven't every day. I hadn't even considered that <laughs> compounding the issue of not being able to actually learning because obviously you got to have reading comprehension to be able to study all these other things. That makes it that much more difficult. Um, and and how tough is it that? I mean, essentially, you had to have a legislature come in and create a political response to something that was due to the fact that the teachers either aren't skilled enough to do it or aren't being taught the right, you know, I mean, I don't know, reading science. I mean, we taught our kids to read before they even went to school. 
So, yeah. and we're not teachers, right? My wife and I are definitely not certified teachers. We were not taught the science of reading. We were taught the love of reading, and we read to our kids and did all that kind of stuff. So all of our children could read uh, before they even went to school. Or, well, they went to homeschool. But they all could read by the time they got to, you know, by the time we got started, they could read. Uh, and that's an important thing. How crazy is it that we have to pass an actual law to make to get kids to be able to read uh, so that they can understand the rest of their 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 class and their learning and everything else, let alone going out in the world. It's insane. And I think one of the things that at least the Alaska Reads Act is doing right is it's making all of these teachers, because we, we don't have control over what is taught in education colleges, right? We right. can't mandate that they have um, all of these other colleges and other states that teachers in Alaska are going to uh, and coming back to the states, we can't control what they're teaching in their curriculum. But what we can do is say, okay, for a teacher license in Alaska, if you're going to be teaching K-3, you need to prove that you're proficient in the science of reading. And it's a pretty low burden kind of exam, um, you know, three semester hours and you pass uh, your your class or you take one of two examinations. Um, and, and you have to show that you're actually able to implement the science of reading in the classroom now, uh, which I think is really quite beneficial because we've got all of these professional development classes and courses coming into the schools. But most of what those are doing is just teaching pedagogy and they're not teaching the subject matters about reading um, and the science of it. So I, th I do think it's important to get every teacher in Alaska on the same page, show that they've met this baseline proficiency in teaching reading through the science of reading. And for those of you who are wondering, pedagogy is basically the practice of methods right. of teaching, right? So, I mean, for those of us who can't read. Yeah. How do you teach? How do you teach? <laughs> right, exactly. And ironically enough, uh, Donna points out in the chat room, schools had the gall to call the requirement to teach to teach children to read an unfunded mandate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would think that that Remarkable. would be a basic function of teaching. No, no, it's an unfunded mandate when you require us to teach children to read. Well, then what are you there for? If you're not there to teach them to read, if nothing else, what are you there for? Uh, Absolutely. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, uh, education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. We are coming up on the break, and so we're going to take that when we come back. We'll talk about the in the conclusion of where the Alaska Reads Act goes next, and then uh, any other educational things that we can talk about here in the next segment with Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum. Back with more right after this, The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. All right, uh, Sarah Montalbano is our guest, the Alaska Policy Forum. Um, I, you know, I know that there's been a problem. Uh, Harold's going on about no money in the classrooms and things like that, but this just seems like such a basic. I mean, I understand that we do have a challenge getting money, that the money, you know, you've talked about how the money is being sucked up in a lot of ways by the overhead and the administration and all this. And we, we all agree on that. We agree that that's a problem, that more money should be getting into the into the classrooms. But Absolutely. for a teacher to have a basic, you know, to have a basic skill set of teaching the children to read, I mean, that should really 
require not a lot of money into the classroom, right? I mean, that should be like the base, that should be like the base function of a teacher is to teach them to read and then everything else wraps up around that. Am I, am Mm -hmm. I wrong? I mean. I do really think that in one of the, I'm trying to find who it was that said this, but I'll, I'll follow up with you later once I find out. One of the really advocates in Mississippi for this said, look, what's more important than reading? Why can't we divert funds from these other things in order to meet this basic function of the schools? Um, Because reading does open so many gateways for students, especially low-income, disadvantaged kids in some way. Uh, But everyone needs to know how to do this. Um, So it's it's really one of those things that it needs to be a priority. uh, And it needs to be really the highest priority of our schools. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I totally agree. Um, I mean, every one of my, we had to laugh because the last, uh, my youngest now is graduating this year. Um, but I know, I mean, that's like, I got them now. They're all out of school. I don't even, Terry's like, I don't know what to do now. I mean, I've got all this free time. (laughs) Um, but we had to laugh the last time he had a student assessment was when he went or, uh, for reading the one that we saw was when he went from, junior high or middle, whatever they call it now, into high school. When he was a freshman, he got the assessment. And here he was in the eighth, ninth grade reading at a college level. And and I'm like, I'm like, is that unusual? And they're like, oh, yes, it's unusual. I'm like, (laughs) okay. Uh, She goes, he struggles with math, but his reading is on point. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great. I mean, to me, that was the important part because, again, that's so wrapped up in everything that we do for the rest of our lives is having a, a you know reading comprehension and everything. It's uh, it's astonishing. Uh, I I remember when I was young and I don't know, my mom and dad. My dad's in the chat room. My mom might be in there. I remember there was a complaint about me at one point when I was in, I think it was junior high school or high school, about he's always reading. I mean, I would I had like you know I would carry novels with me, and in the time when I was bored, I'd just be like sneaking that thing out, reading my book because <laughs> you know I was bored with what's going on. Just give me something new, um, uh, and it's because I just loved it. I loved uh, I loved literature. I loved the the ideas and the the things like you know it is a critical life skill, and I can't believe that we have to fundamentally pass a law to get people to make this happen. And then they're fighting back against it. They, we, they we're fighting. How dare you require us to teach reading uh, on a, at a, I just, I don't even understand it. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. And it, it really does need to be top priority. And, and also, yeah, having that love of reading because there's so many kids that because it's difficult, they stop trying and they don't want to read and they don't want to learn. And if you had just a little more support, just intense interventions to help that kid learn how to read, maybe they'd be reading for the rest of their lives. Uh, it's it's really a tragedy. And one one resource I'd like to recommend to your, your audience here is go to uh, Sold a Story. It's a podcast that an education journalist has put together. And some of the stories in there are just heartbreaking about how how did we get to this point? Where did, where did we go so wrong that kids were being taught how to read in just such an, a, a way that just doesn't accord with anything we've seen in the research? Uh, so, yeah, check that out because sold, I, I have enjoyed that. Sold, sold a story. Sold a – you were sold a story kind of thing. So sold yeah, a story. They were right. sold a story. Yeah, they yeah. were sold a story that our kids would get a good education. Instead, what we got was a glorified ba- babysitting service in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that's yeah. – 
And that's that's tough. And of course, senators, uh, I know the minority, David Boyle points out that the minority actually offered an amendment uh, to ensure that dollars went into the classroom, and that was defeated 16 to 3. I mean, we were supposed to, there used to be a mandate that 70% of the BSA went directly into the classroom, and that's, dang, nope, not going to not gonna happen, not going to happen, can't, can't have that, um, which is, I thought this was, wait, I thought this was all about the children. I didn't realize this was all about the jobs and the education uh, uh, machine. It's it's not about the children. I didn't realize that. Um, all right. So we're going to finish up here. We're about uh, 30 seconds out here, uh, Sarah. We'll finish up sure. with where the Alaska Reads Act goes from here. And then what else What else you got for us this morning? Anything on your plate before I go to my agenda? Not all that much. Okay. I got to say, I'm not up on the new budget. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this here and we will continue. Sure. Sarah Montalbano, our guest. From the Alaska Policy Forum, please like and share the show, like and follow the show page. But most importantly, go over to YouTube, and I'm sure Sarah's done this already, and she's liked, she's subscribed and rang the bell on YouTube. Be like Sarah. That's what you need to do. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Public anima number one. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, enemy, public enemy number one, which makes more sense. On the other hand, he's a little bit of a pain in the uh, Michael Duke show. See, that's a perfect example of why you need reading comprehension right there. Because the <laughs> enemy and enemy, those are two different things completely. Two different, <laughs> your comprehension needs to be a lot higher on that. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum and our education expert here on the program. We love to talk about these things. We've been talking about the Alaska Reads Act, which passed, of course, last year, uh, but it's going to be implemented in the coming year. Uh, and so much pushback on this, even after it passed, so much pushback on this. You would wonder why? I mean, it's for the children, right? I mean, this is an actual thing, a life skill that they will take. It is the one life skill that we all use on a daily basis moving forward. As I said earlier, I can't remember the last time somebody asked me to figure out the circumference of a circle or, uh, you know, some kind of scientific principle that I've probably forgotten from high school. But I read every single day. Uh, so it's something that's important. So, Sarah, what what's happening with the Alaska Reads Act now? It's going. It's coming into effect. Tell us, you know, where where does it go from here, and how should we be watching the milestones for it, et cetera? Absolutely. Uh, so everything pretty much in this is going to be implemented in the coming school year. Uh, they've been working very hard through this spring. Deed has at least. Uh, they've hosted webinars every week since January that I've been watching. Um, and they, they've really done a good job. So this early literacy screener, that's going to be implemented. Districts are going to have to administer that in the fall uh, to all students. And then winter and spring for those students who were uh, not proficient in the fall. Um, and then those students who are identified with a deficiency, um, parents are notified within 15 days. They come up with a plan uh, called an individualized reading improvement plan. Big, big plan. Uh, bureaucratic word there. Uh, but this plan uh, will be implemented within 30 days. There's progress reports sent home uh, throughout the school year, and kids are getting this kind of intensive intervention, usually in small groups, um, and with some help from parents at, uh, at home. Uh, so parents are brought into this too, uh, when they're uh, interested and available, of course, um, which is absolutely most parents. Um, and so, you know, these students uh, are 
you know, once they get to third grade, if they've been through this intervention uh, in third grade, it triggers a conversation about third grade promotion. And I think a lot of people hear that and they say, oh gosh, you're retaining students. This is really bad for them. Uh, and I want to highlight uh, a few studies. Re retaining seen. students, yeah. you mean by holding them back is what you're Hold talking back about. Right. Yep. Yeah. So you flunked, I mean, you know, they don't use that word anymore, but you flunked a grade basically, right? Yeah. But you're holding them back because they haven't picked it up yet. And I mean, that's, yeah. that's important. Absolutely. And when you're promoting third grade students who are struggling with reading still to the fourth grade, you're setting them up to fail in these later class materials that actually require them to read in order to learn them. Um, so really, I see this third grade promotion will talk about um, the it gives them the extra opportunity uh, to receive the time and interventions they need from a teacher. Um, and so you're not just repeating the same coursework with uh, the same teacher, uh, but you need to be able to do that uh, before you move on to fourth grade. Uh, but the Alaska Reads Act has a lot of options for uh, moving on to the next grade. It's not just the screener and it's not just your performance on one test on one day. I think we can all agree that sometimes that's not reflective of what you actually know how to do. Um, so, you know, there's, you can take the screener, you can take your Alaska star assessment. Uh, you can also compile a reading portfolio um, of things to show class materials that you've done enough to be promoted to fourth grade. Right. Um, so there's there's a lot of options there. And parents can always sign a waiver and say, look, we're going to give them 20 hours of, of intervention over the summer. Right. And then then you can move on. Well, uh, again, so I, I mean, I, I hate to see kids be held back, but again, I hate to see kids being dumped into the deep end of the pool without the preparation and the, and the information on how to swim, you know, or how to, how to make it in that area. Uh, we've got somebody in the chat room basically says the Reads Act will simply place additional stress on teachers. Without the funds to support classroom, the Reads Act, or any other mandate will literally result in more teachers leaving. I'm sorry, if a teacher cannot show a proficiency in teaching and teaching children how to read, then maybe they shouldn't have teacher attached to them if they can't teach kids how to read. I mean, that's and that's where we're and it's obvious. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean here, but that's. Obviously, the problem when we've got kids who are graduating from high school that have basic who are functionally illiterate, then something has failed. And if you can't get a teacher to basically teach something as simple as reading, then maybe those aren't teachers that you want in your classroom, if that's the thing. I, I don't see how it's additional stress on teachers to be able to teach kids how to that's that's a that's a base function. That should be that should be program block number one before anything else. If you can't teach them to read, yeah, I agree with absolutely first priority. And there's always going to be kids in the classroom that you know aren't able to read for whatever reason. But that shouldn't be because the teacher hasn't tried hard enough or the teacher hasn't um, taught them with what we know works from science. We we have this comprehensive body of literature that has converged on a consensus in the scientific community and that doesn't always happen very often so we we know how to do this we can get teachers to teach it this way and there's always options for these students to move on to fourth grade or to be held back for one year right. uh, to to catch up and get right. the skills they need to be successful in fourth grade we all agree that the funding should get to the classroom we all agree that more of the education funding should trickle down into the classrooms itself 
I mean, there's no dis. I mean, I don't think amongst the listeners here, I don't think there's any di- functional disagreement with that. The problem is to say, well, they can't teach the basics without more of that funding getting down there. They should be starting with that. Everything else should fall to the wayside if they can't. If they can't, you know, maybe all these other mandates for you know whatever social things, you know, justice, equity, form, whatever it is, all these other things, maybe that should fall to the way. I mean, to me, before math, you need to be able to know how to read. That's the most important part out there because that is, the again, the one skill that you'll be using every day for the rest of your life. Exactly. And, you know, math has word problems. You know, you, you will need these things to be successful in your other subjects. And uh, yeah, it's it's just remarkable that we're at this point. Uh, all of these other things should be secondary considerations uh, to reading. Reading needs to be up top, first priority, uh, first thing you're teaching in the classroom, and the thing that you need to to uh, have most. Right. Uh, so it's going to start this year, Sarah. If um, mm-hmm. I've done this to you before, but if I made you queen for a day, how would you make this better? How would you make this better in, uh, you know, I mean, we're following almost every mandate or every best practice that, you know, Florida and Mississippi and other states with the Read Acts have put forward. How could we do better in the state and how could we make it better when we implement it here this next year? I always appreciate the opportunity to get on a soapbox. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the the biggest part of this is, you know, make this screener required for everyone in the winter and the spring. Uh, you need to catch the kids who were okay in the fall and maybe fell off in the middle of the year sometime. Um, the second thing is the reading portfolio in places like Florida. That's collected mostly by the teacher. Once you're in an individualized reading program, um, you the teacher starts collecting pieces of your work to make the case that you should be uh, promoted to fourth grade in case you're you're not proficient on the screener. Um, the portfolio, as far as I understand it here in Alaska, is going to be mostly parent-driven. Uh, the parent can show, okay, this this kid is able to do these things. Um, and so there's, there's some best practices for reading portfolios I think we could improve on. Other than that, we're, we're pretty much doing all the right things. And I, I'm really excited uh, to see what happens here. We're probably not going to see uh, improvements in test scores for a couple of years, uh, probably. But hopefully on the ne- next National Assessment of Educational Progress, the next NAEP exam, we'll start to see some score improvements. Like I said, in Mississippi, I, th- I think I said this, um, Mississippi was 49th, exactly where we were, right? where we are right now. And they jumped up to 29th and they had the second highest gains. Uh, and they've done particularly well for low income students since 2013. So that's been a decade. Right. Um, and it's not really a, yeah. things around. It's not an overnight fix. I mean, we're not going to see huge improvements next year, but as these kids mm-hmm. cycle out of third grade and make their way up, if you start catching them at third grade, by the time they get to 10th grade, uh, you know, you should see a noticeable improvement in that. And I could I could only wish uh, that for parents and for students to be able to yeah. develop that love of learning. I mean, that allowed me to escape to the Wild West and the outer reaches of space and to understand concepts that I would have never, you know, and to read histories that were I remember taking a, a history class. 
um, and reading well outside the curriculum because I was so fascinated by it and because I could understand it. And it was, you know, that was that was a huge thing for me. So I could only wish that we could reach those areas as well. Sarah Montalbano, our guest, uh, the Alaska Policy Forum. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on board and we look forward to seeing it. And maybe next time after the session, you and I can go over what actually came out of the session. Yeah. Do a recap of what actually came out and what it means. So thank you so much for coming on board. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Hold the line, Sarah. Folks, we got more coming up. Representative Ben Carpenter is going to come up and talk with us about the state of the fiscal plan. Newsflash. It's a hot freaking mess. But we're going to be continuing that here in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. I mean, I again, I just don't buy this argument that, well, it's such a burden on teachers to, to, to teach the, the, the word that... Uh, are you kidding me? This is a basic function of your job is to teach Mm -hmm. reading. I mean, especially at the lower levels. I mean, maybe I don't expect a history teacher in high school to be teaching reading per se, but this is specifically talking about K through three, K through four teachers who are supposed to be, this is supposed to be the core of their job is to teach these kids how to read. That makes, I mean, that makes zero sense to say, well, this just puts too much stress on them and it's unfunded. You're... Mm -hmm. This is a basic funding. This is the base. This is the base requirement for. That's like you know you you you're a taxi driver. Your base requirement is to have a driver's license as a taxi driver. That's not a burden. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. This is a core function of the schools, and like like uh, those people in Mississippi were saying, what is more important than reading? Uh, we will need to find the money. Uh, from other things that are less important because reading is the most important thing you can do. Um, yeah, I, I really do feel that way. Uh, I'm glad we've taken this step as a state. Um, I, I am confident that DEED is doing a good job implementing. And again, I have not stressed enough that they've been doing incredible support. Uh, for instance, this early literacy screener, DEED is paying for it. Districts don't have to pay to go pick out a screener. Um, and that's just one of the many things they're doing. So I, I also do not find that argument convincing. No, I don't find the argument convincing that this is somehow some kind of unfunded mandate that's going to cost people millions of dollars. Um, again, a base core fundamental, you, you at the core, you need to be able to teach because everything, it's the, it's the cornerstone. Everything is based on reading. Every other Every other study, skill, if you want to teach, I don't know, gender fluidity or social justice, they got to be able to read the material to be able to understand it. And if you can't read the material, they're never going to be able to, or maybe they just want us just dumb and drooling on ourselves. And that's what, you know, we'll tell you what to believe kind of thing. Maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's working as intended. I don't know. But I think that 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 early literacy is the cornerstone of any great society. People have got to be able to understand. I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Honestly. It, it's uh it's it's horribly 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 uh frustrating to watch those kind of arguments. I could never understand what the what the redis, what the reticence and the um obstructionism behind this bill was all about. I mean, like you do care about that you want the children to read, right? I mean, it's not a secret that we got kids coming out that can't figure out how to read a basic 
menu, let alone something else. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Uh, anyway, Sarah, final thoughts for you. I'm sorry. I'll give you your soapbox back again here. You get <laughs> you get the last 90 seconds, two minutes here to, to continue on. Sure. I wanted to just point out, uh, Kim in the chat had a good point that we need to be more consistent with curriculum. I agree. Um, this is one of the things, though, that I think is worth implementing and sticking with. It'll be uh, I think reauthorized in 10 years, uh, p- potentially, I think that's its sunset. So we were, we were really giving this a good shot at working, uh, with the long time horizon. Uh, we're following all these best practices and, uh, for all you parents out there, figure out how your kid is learning how to read, read with them, uh, see what the teachers are doing as best you can. And, uh, really, really do your best, uh, to, to give your kid this chance uh, because there there's nothing more important than reading uh, for, for your child's future uh, and for the future of the state. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it is the cornerstone of everything for sure. Uh, Sarah Montalbano, uh, our guest today. Thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. It's always uh, as good, uh, good to see you on a Monday. Sorry. Thank it's you. a bright way to start <laughs> off my week. It's hard for you, but good for us. So we appreciate yeah. that. I always enjoy it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on board this morning. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, all right. Sarah Montalbano, our guest here on the Michael Duke Show. Uh, I see that Representative Ben Carpenter is also in the green room here this morning. We're getting ready to uh, dive into that with him. So let's uh, let's uh, check our check the audio, make sure everything's good to go. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm fine. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Let me turn you up just a little bit here, make sure that I got uh, all that good. So, uh, wow, this must have been a frustrating weekend for you. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is time number five. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Same SSDD, right? Same stuff, different day, right? That's the, that seems to be the answer. Uh, when, when will we learn? Yeah. Well, I don't think, I, I think it's a, that's a, that's a never question. When will we learn? I, at this point, I'm not convinced that we will, unfortunately. Um, all right, so we're ready to uh, to get into this, um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, first. We'll talk about uh, ways and means, and the spending cap, and the amendments, and things like that, and then we can break over into the turducken, and you know what the effect do you think it's going to have on uh, on the house, and and how this is all going to lay out um, here in the in the in the in the next few days. Uh, we've got what till Wednesday at midnight for this session, and we'll probably have at least a ten day or if not a full thirty day special session. I think that's inevitable at this point, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see what we got going on. So uh, we'll we'll come back to you here in a hot second, okay? All right. So that's uh, again uh, Representative Ben Carpenter in the green room, ready to ready to go. All right, folks. Well, we uh, are up against it. I would uh, let's see. Any other, when you have a generation that can't read, playing video games with their kids instead of reading them, what do you expect? I did both, David. It's not that hard. I not only read to them, I also played video games with them. And by the way, we read the subtitles on the video games as well in funny voices because that's what we do around here. That's just, that's how it is. (laughs) It's just how it is. All right. I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. The Michael Duke Show, hour two, right now. Here we go.
buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Oh, baby, across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to the uh, audio-only stream, to the uh, podcasts, which are available on CastBox, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and, of course, Spotify, and links to our social media sites where we simulcast the radio show every morning, including on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. All the places you can go to watch the show each and every day. Uh, don't forget, by the way, uh, you can also check us out over on the Common Sense Core if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to uh, help support the show in a variety of ways. We'd love for you to, uh, we'd love for you to help us out over there. Become a member of the Cool Kids Cool Kids Club. Get access to the uh, to the Facebook page, the private Facebook page, and more. Uh, it's all over there. Just go to uh, uh, MichaelDukeShow.com and click on Join the Core. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Michael Duke Show. Any, either one of those takes you to the same spot. Hour two of the big radio broadcast, and we're continuing uh, with all the last-minute Friday surprises. Um, I This is, I mean, I, I called it. I said they're going to drop it at the very end of the week, and they're going to hand it over to the house and say, this is it, baby. This is it, sugar lips. Pucker up and, and eat it. You're going to like it every minute of it. Uh, you're going to do what we say, or we're going to blame you for the shutdown. And then, of course, we had our own little insurrection going on inside the House majority where we saw parts of the fiscal plan, which is what we've been working towards the entire time, is towards a long-term comprehensive fiscal plan that will fix what's fundamentally broken in the legislature, which is this fascination and this absolutely obsession with the size and scope of the dividend and all these other components. Uh, the fiscal, the uh, Ways and Means Committee has been working on all these parts of the fiscal policy for the long term, and we saw that get all hand grenaded the end of last week. Uh, joining us this morning to discuss this is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Ben Carpenter, joins us this morning to talk uh, about this and kind of give us the full rundown on everything that's happening, what's happened, and what's going to happen uh, here this morning. Good morning, Representative. Good morning, Michael. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, after reading a couple articles yesterday afternoon, I reached out to Representative Carpenter and said, boy, do we should talk about this. We should talk about this because this is a hot mess. And he agreed to do so, and we appreciate that. So, uh, Ben, let's start off with, I guess, the million-pound elephant in the room. Uh, you had several of the pieces that have been up in front of Ways and Means, specifically the spending cap, the new PFD formula, um, and the um, um, and the tax bills were all sitting in ways and means, and we had some surprise things happen, including a basically I don't know if you'd say nerfing, neutering, 
gutting of the of the spending cap provision. Uh, so let's first talk about that. That was one of the big pieces that was coming out. Um, it, they all had to work in combination, right? That's what the fiscal policy working group said, is that we had to have all these pieces together. It couldn't just be one and done. And I guess we've kind of seen some of the danger of that. Tell us what happened with the spending cap bill and uh, what what that has caused inside, the traffic jam that that has caused inside of Ways and Means. Yep, Michael, I'd love to get into that. Let me just uh, set the stage just a little bit. Um, House Ways and Means was asked, tasked, that was as creation of the special committee at the beginning of the session with, so they were tasked with considering methods to control state spending, identifying ways in which state government programs could be made more efficient and propose new measures to raise additional state revenue. That was my job as part of this majority and my assignment as the um, chair of uh, ways and means. I, I chose to use the fiscal policy working group as a framework for finding the solutions, the the bills, the the, the things that we could actually take action on, uh, and and present to the legislature. So, I, I, we put together five bills that that could loosely be described as a plan. Right, it's a, a fiscal focus. Um, there's the accountability and efficient spending that we put in uh, in the bills, the HDR two and HB thirty eight. We uh, uh, put away the. Um, settle the PFD problem with HDR 7 and, and House Bill 110. And then we, we combine the two tax proposals into one bill, HB 109, which is a reduction of corporate income tax to, to stimulate economic growth, which other states have done successfully, and uh, create a, a statewide 2% sales tax to, to help um, stabilize the state's finances with a new revenue source. So all of those together are um, what you could call a plan. There's no right. there's no plan to execute them because they can't all be taken up um, collectively, uh, like all as one at one time. You have to take them individually and, and pass them. But together, they would the effect they would have would be a a stabilizing impact on our our fiscal future. Right. So what. And this, is, and, and this wasn't just picked out of the ether. Like you said, you were using the fiscal policy working group a plan as a framework. So this wasn't just plucked out of nowhere. These are the pieces and parts that this this bicameral, bi, uh, you know, biparty, you know, uh, bipartisan committee came together and put together. So this wasn't just guesswork on your part. That, that's correct. It wasn't guesswork. And it wasn't just uh, figuring out what what the solution is to the numbers problem, it was also figuring out a solution to the political problem. Well, as we've as you see, what happens in legislatures is the the um, the goalposts shift, right? So you can say you're bringing forward a plan, and you can say, hey, this is this has got bipartisan support, but really, people don't want to on the left don't want to see any sort of um, well, let's just say fiscal discipline. We don't want to they don't want to see any discipline, and all, all the conversation devolved to was, we just need to raise revenue. That's the solution. We just need to raise revenue. So those members largely weren't on the fiscal policy working group because either they weren't here or they weren't part of it. Uh, they're, you know, Representative Shragi as the minority leader who's kind of been poo-pooing any sort of fiscal plan. Um, he was a member, but um, evidently raising revenue is the only thing that's really important to him. So we're at, we're at a situation now where we passed the bills out of uh, past our, our um, accountability and efficient spending, right? The spending limit bills out of ways and means. And we passed the PFD solution out of ways and means. And we were um, 
ready to pass the sales tax or the tax proposal bill out of Ways and Means. And then Ways and, and then uh, the House Finance um, Committee uh, amended the spending limit bill to raise the, the level, the, the limit, the spending limit that we would put in place on ourselves. They, they voted to raise it a billion dollars, roughly. Right. So if I had sent them a tax bill and sent the body a tax bill, we would have just raised the limit enough to spend all of the tax money. Right, which of course has been one of my look. This has been my concern the whole time. I mean, we've talked about taxes on this show only in what I consider to be a proactive way. We've talked about the different forms of taxes because I think that they are eventually going to come, and we should talk about the best form of tax if we're going to get tax. We might as well be part of the discussion about it. But my biggest fear is you give them more tax money, you give them more revenue, and they're just going to spend it. That's why the spending cap component was so important. Now, they put this extra billion dollars in by doing one sneaky thing, and that was the the prior spending cap did not include the PFD payout was outside of the spending cap, right? And by pulling it into the spending cap, they've continued this PFD fight into the foreseeable future. Well, they did that. There's, that's true that they did that, but they also raised the limit, the percentages of GDP that would be the functional limit. So if you hadn't raised the limit, then you wouldn't have been able to spend that money. So that's that's why they raised the limit. So the the, the the point is, is that the the new spending limit that they established would allow the operating budget to grow by about a billion dollars. Whether you're taking it from the PFD or whether you're taking it from a new re, uh, revenue source, it wouldn't matter the source. We would just spend a billion dollars. We would allow ourselves to spend a billion dollars more. Well, we can't even. I mean, we we had a <laughs> we had a deficit this year. Why would you put a Why would you put a spending limit in place that allows you to spend more? We don't. Right. Yeah. Going the opposite direction. And, trying to find a, pro a solution to the problem. So anyway, these bills don't die, right? This is just the first session of the uh, legislative uh, uh, year. So all these bills will be carried forward to the next session and we'll continue to have the conversation. I mean, the, the reality is, is that if you take any one of these components and just try to pass it through the legislature, I don't know, I don't know how that gets done unless you twist arms and, and manipulate to get something done. Right. We've, we've really got to reach a, a point where legislators can actually read the bills and, and understand the change to the structure that we're trying to do with business as usual. What, and what I found after talking to um, just about all of the members of the house, many of them hadn't even read the bills yet. And so that makes it very hard to have a conversation about um, finding agreement if you don't even know what is before you, right? If, if you don't even know what your options are, right? Like, so, if you're voting for a bill or or put, you know, if you haven't even read the bill that you're supposed to be debating and discussing and working on, then what's the act? Why are you actually there? Is the is the bigger question? Um, I want to know just from your perspective. I mean, what were the arguments as to why we needed to change the spending cap bill? What was the I mean, what was the purpose of that? What was the argument in favor of increasing spending? As you point out, we're already in deficit right now. Why would we need to add another billion to it? What's the justification for the changes uh, at this point that you heard? So I think that the biggest takeaway can be from that maneuver 
was to show that there isn't a will to limit ourselves, to, to instill discipline on ourselves, and that all we want to do is raise spending. That was the, that was the, that's what we, <laughs> that's what I think that the, the makers of the amendments wanted to show is that we're not ready for a fiscal plan. We're not ready to have a conversation about bettering the state's finances. All we want to do is continue to spend, spend, spend. We're, we are addicted to free oil money and free permanent fund revenue money. And all we can see, it's like, it's like having rage, right? Right, right. <laughs> the problems and the only solution is what I can see. And it's to spend, spend, spend. Right. Well, but unfortunately, we can already see the handwriting on the wall that, I mean, we're in deficit now. We've spent savings for the last 10 years. We've, you know, we haven't really produced a balanced budget in almost 10 years. We've burned through $14 billion, $15 billion in savings. I mean, at what point does reality smack some of these people in the face? I mean, you may want to spend, you may not have the appetite for cuts, but there is this thing called arithmetic and if you don't uh, if you don't pay attention to it it is a harsh mistress it will school you in a big way i don't know what year it will be but the when will be when the permanent fund is gone that's that's the long-term plan that's in play right now the, people the have to realize that the permanent fund dividend or the permanent fund itself the permanent fund itself Unfortunately. if you don't want to have a, a tax conversation you you don't want to have a a uh, put ourselves on a diet conversation. Then all you're going to do is spend the available revenue, and once the permanent fund dividend is gone, then there's this large corpus that's sitting there, and it's only a minor. It's just a change away from being able to be spent. Yeah, this has always been. So one of the one of the criticisms of where the state's at right now financially is the lack of money that we're spending on capital projects. We're just a couple scenarios away from capital projects being the the um, the thing that's going to save us. We need to invest in capital, and we've got this ginormous permanent fund here that is necessary for us. And we need to tap into it. And we need we need to. It's more important that we have capital projects than having this large nest egg. Right. There are, there are members that are going to bring that up in the future. Yeah. So the. The, the reality is, is while the state has the money and savings, and, and I would just loosely call the permanent fund as a savings, that there's going to be a demand to to get to it. And I think this is why why Hammond said we needed to keep some sort of a tax is because we've got to have a tie to the to the people, to the cost of government and to the decisions that are happening down here. Right. And and right now, if if we allow the state government to consume all of the permanent fund earnings for state government, there will be no connection between the state uh, decision-making process down here, the government lobby, all of the, all of the good ideas that come out every legislative session as to why we need to spend more. And these programs are so important and we need to, we just need to keep growing our government and the people back home who are completely disconnected. There's, yeah. there's no, there's nothing connecting us to that decision. And the members of the of the legislature that get elected from districts that that um, by and large don't have a whole lot of government influence in them, we will be a decreasing number of people in the legislature with with less influence. Right. Because the whole purpose of the legislature will be to just divvy up the cash every year for government spending. It it will have no connection to private sector interests. 
Representative Ben Carpenter is our guest, chair of the Ways and Means Committee. I've been saying since 1999, I think, uh, that the whole goal here is to get their hands on the corpus of the permanent fund. And, of course, with the change for the POMV back in the day, that was the beginning of the end. And now, with these amendments to this spending limit, that pretty much puts a nail in the coffin of your PFD and everything else. We're going to continue with uh, Ben Carpenter in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show continues. It is your home for common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. we return with more right after this. Listen to by more staffers in Juno than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, in the break right now, Ben Carpenter is our guest. Uh, we're going to talk about where we go from here uh, with the fiscal plan next, and then we'll finish up with... Uh, uh, the budget and and everything else, uh, Ben. It just it just it's 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 astonishing to me that nobody else. I've often used the analogy of we're on a train, we could see that the bridge is out, and instead of applying the brakes, there's legislators just shoveling coal into the box, saying, "Well, we'll make it, we'll make it. It won't be a big deal." But we could see the bridge is out. We know that it's happening, and you can't leap that gap. And that's the mathematics gap, right? I mean, that's the we're going to run out of money and then what are you going to do kind of gap. And yet there's legislators who just don't seem to understand it. Now, if this was all just a ploy to show that there's no will to limit the size and scope of government, I guess mission accomplished. If that's really what it was all about was just showing that there's no will. But shouldn't we be working towards educating people on the, the chasm that is ahead of us? Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, in a, in a larger sense, it speaks to the the reality of our our culture right now. We are a people that likes to criticize and 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 uh, snipe and and sharpshoot, but we don't really have a whole lot of solutions. So when we talk about um, a fiscal plan, some people say, "Well, that that plan will never work. You can never get a plan across. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's you can never you can never do that." Well, you can't get a solution to the PFD either. You can't get a spending limit either if you just take those by themselves. And so what's the solution? Is it to run the ship aground? Is it to do something that's difficult even though it's the right thing to do? I mean, right. we, don't have, we don't have the culture that likes to do the difficult thing even though it's the right thing to do. Well, we just it's yeah we're we're a reflection of our own culture down here, and I I would just um also I wanted to highlight something that you had said that this at the end of the um, segment there was that this was a um a nail in the coffin, and I would just argue that if if there's members out there that think that if we all we need to do is just get a spending limit in place, well let's let's just wave a magic wand and say that a spending limit gets put in place, it's effective, and we can't. We can't spend any more than what our population grows or whether our economy grows, whatever you tie it to. And then that does happen. Okay. So let's just say we passed our resolutions and the, the, the gross domestic product grows in the state magically. 
and now the state can spend more money, where is it going to go to spend that money? Right. It's going to go to the permanent fund earnings that are in the form of the dividend. Right. That isn't being spent on state government. So putting just putting in a spending limit in place is also the death of the PFD because the government is going to have to go to the, the permanent fund earnings to grow as you told it to with the spending limit. So it isn't just a spending limit that's going to solve the solve the long term problem of state growth and state government because it will consume all of the revenue that's available to it. What we need are more people engaged in what's going on down here in Juneau and and lobbying and influencing the decisions that are being made down here. That's right. that's the crux of the problem. I and mean, we go back to moving the capital away from Juneau. You're not going to do that unless you've got a private sector lobby elsewhere that can speak louder than the government lobby down here in Juneau. You have to have a growing economy, private sector economy, if you want to see your your influence in the state government um, shift to private sector economic principles that that matter for people. Right. Well, yeah. this is this is one of the reasons why they, you know, the the fiscal policy working group said you can't just have one component. Because as you said, if you have just the spending cap, it kills the PFD. If you have just an income tax or a new revenue source, it just increases government spending and they still spend the PFD. Uh I mean, you could go through this time and time again, but it's I mean, it's it's horrific. All right. We'll hold the line here, Ben. We're about to jump back into it. Folks, like and share, like and follow. Let's uh, get stuff uh, squared away here. Let me mute that down here. We're going to be back. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Let's, uh, let's get to it. Here we go. Let's, uh, let's do it. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> Pinch of in sorry, that is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. We're continuing now with just a pinch of intellect, no more, no less. The Michael Duke Show. Uh, we're continuing with Ben Carpenter, who is the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. He was tasked early on uh, in this session with helping to create a fiscal plan, a long-term fiscal plan. One of our challenges, of course, being that these things all needed to be done in concert. There's uh, seven or eight points that all need to be really pulled together. Uh, unfortunately, we have this uh, rule, although, I mean, I, I would love to see a legal argument on how a fiscal plan is a single subject to begin with, with many moving parts. But because of the single subject rule, they've had to move each and every one of these pieces out individually, which makes it, I mean, incrementally tougher to try and fix the problem because you can't do it all in one fell swoop. Uh, ben, where do we go from here? I mean, as you point out, this is the first half of the session. This year is the first half of the session. Next year will be the, the final half of the session. So these bills aren't dead, but I mean, where does this, where does this go from here? You've got a spending limit that basically is ineffectual. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's statutory. So it was kind of ineffectual to begin with, but even in its own mean, it it's ineffectual now the way that it's been amended. So where do we go from here? What what happens next? Well, just because the legislature hasn't taken action doesn't mean the uh, problem uh, has been resolved, right? We still have the problem out there, so we're still going to have to continually talk about this and and try to build support going forward. I mean, it's a it's an uphill battle, but 
you know, many times uh, systemic change and things that really need to happen have to marinate for a while. And you need to throw the plan out there. You need to have the solutions and people take a while to come around to it. This is just, you know, we've only been talking about this you know, for four months with these specific measures. So, you know, we got this summer to talk about it and, um, you know, build support. If the public wants to see something like this happen, I mean, what, what we basically have presented is um, having the people be able to vote on a constitutional amendment that there will be a PFD paid and will define what it is in statute outside the appropriations process. There will be an effective spending limit. And those two things would be what people could vote on. And we still have time to get that on the ballot for the next election. And then and then you've got a, a sales tax bill that gets uh, basically lumped in there. And the legislation can be written such that if you say, if the people say no to those other two provisions, then the sales tax doesn't take effect, right? You can draft it so that that's what happens. So then the people are in complete control. They can say yes to right. uh, discipline and they can say yes to a PFD and they can say yes to a sales tax or they can say no to the whole shebang and we'll go back to the drawing board. That's, that's what was, what has been presented out of ways and means is to engage the people and let them speak about what they would want to see, present a solution to the people, to our boss, right. and let them say yes or no. All of they it, say no, we come back. Yeah, all of it with contingency language that basically says, you know, if A passes, then B works. If A and B pass, then C works. If, you know, A, B and C pass. I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to, it's the only way you can tie it all together because of the single subject rule, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And the only, the only way that this is going to work really, in my opinion, is if we have an outcry from the public that says, hey, we need to get our fiscal house in order. We've got a plan out there, put it before the people and let them vote on it. Otherwise, you've got legislators here that just want to continue doing what we've always done. It controls, you know, they've got their power structure set up. They're in the positions that they're in and they're just gonna continue the, the train marching towards using the permanent fund earnings to pay for state government. Yeah. And, and that doesn't solve the problem because the government's still going to grow, right? The government still grows, even if we use 100% of the permanent fund earnings on the government. So the question is, once that happens, and we're only a few budget cycles away from that being the reality, then you've got a tax. Right. <laughs> you don't have another source of revenue to pay for the state government that's going to grow. Yeah. So you, you, the question is, do you want a PFD now? and accept a tax or do you want the PFD to go away and be stuck with a tax? Right. That's well, the reality that we're at. Well, that's what I don't understand from your, from your cohorts there in the legislature is, I mean, I could see based on past history and, you know, past performances indicative of future results. I could see where it's going to consume all of the PFD and all of this. And then we're still, because of the way the government is structured, it still goes up $150 million a year minimum every year, no matter what. I could still see that in five, 10 years, we're talking about another billion. I mean, the, the taxes are going to be inevitable at this point. Does nobody else see that? Or do they just think, oh, it's only not during my, not during my tenure, I'll be gone. During, during my, I mean, is that, is that what's happening here? There are some legislators here that are going to be okay with using all of the permanent fund earnings on state government and instituting a tax because they believe we need to spend a billion dollars more than we're spending now on services. That's what the vote in house finance was about. 
you saw people that said, yes, raise that limit. The limit is too low. We need to raise the limit so that we can spend a billion dollars more because that's where we think we need to be at. I, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just shocked at this point, just shocked that this is kind of where we're at. So are we essentially saying at this point that, um, we're going to have to wait to the next half of the session to really get anything done? Is that kind of where we're at? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out here very soon because we have an opportunity to force the hand of people who don't want to have the conversation, similar to how we got the fiscal policy working group going. Right. If we say no, if we say no to the budget and we just say, look, stop this craziness, we're not going to pass a budget until we pass at least one component of a plan, this legislature, and hold hold the budget hostage in a sense and say no to the budget until we get this the the will of the body to move forward in some form or fashion on a on a long-term fiscal plan that doesn't include erasing the permanent fund dividend, then I don't know. I mean, it's going to be an uphill battle next session trying to get it passed. But so we'll find out. We'll find out whether there are enough people that say no to passing a budget. And that's largely in two different votes. We have a concurrence vote that will be coming up here very shortly. The The Senate is, their actions are, are <clears throat> right? They really view the House of Representatives as a, a 40 member advisory committee. <laughs> they're, they're, they have refused to take this budget to conference committee. That is the structure that those are the rules that we follow when we have a disagreement on a budget. And, and we always do. We, we go to conference committee and we work it out. We work out something where both sides have a say on the budget. The Senate majority has just said, this is going to be the budget. Take it or leave it. We're going home. We're not giving you an opportunity to, um, to, find the solution. Right. So, well, which I, um, I, I want to get into that whole point in the next segment, because I think that is, again, that the, the crux of a problem here. Uh, but walk me through it here. I got about three minutes of the rest of this segment. Walk me through. So the, the, the spending limit is going to, is in finance. Is it coming to the floor? You said you're not going to pass the tax bill out of house ways and means right now. Uh, we've got the permanent fund bill. Tell me, tell me where everything is in the process and what we see here in the last three days with the fiscal policy components. Well, I, do, I don't think that you're going to see the, um, the resolution leave finance because that's, that's the constitutional amendment. That's what would actually cause the spending limit to have teeth. And I don't think you've got the co-chairs of finances support to get that out of, out of finance. You might see the, the the spending limit bill that puts a statutory spending limit um, in place. You might see that come out of finance, but that would be no different than the current statutory limit that we ignore. So I I mean all that would all that would be is to be able to say, hey, we passed an updated spending limit. Right. I mean, which does we don't have to yeah. follow it. We've got no in um, no inclination to follow it, but we can go to the people and say we passed one. Right. Uh, the uh, permanent fund uh, formula that is still where is that in how is that in uh, finance, finance now? Yeah, still sitting in finance. So that's probably not going anywhere. And then yeah. you have said that you refuse to pass it for the reasons you stated earlier. You've refused to move the tax bill out of House Ways and Means, because what's the point if they pass this statutory with an extra billion dollars in spending in it and that tax bill passes? 
then they've just got an extra billion dollars in revenue to play with. Yeah. The, the reality is, is we all need to be working towards a disciplined government and some of us are not. Some of us want to see an undisciplined government with, with excessive spending, with as much spending as we can spend. And so we're not working together towards a fiscal plan if that's that's what your objective is. It, sound fiscal policy means we need to have discipline. Right. And if you're not going to bring discipline to the table, then <laughs> right. Then we're, we're not going to be disciplined. Well, I that's mean, it, it just. I mean, again, it, it goes back to the analogy of the person with some kind of a, abuse problem, substance abuse of some kind. In this case, it's spending, but it applies to pretty much everything. Yet the first step to fixing the problem is admitting you have a problem, and nobody around there is willing to admit we have a spending problem. You know that's, that we're. It, they think it's just going to. They think the party is going to continue forever. That is that is the quintessential problem. We do not have enough members that recognize that there is a problem. If you look at your own communities, if you look at what's happening with our private sector economy and the lack of growth, the lower 48 is, has, um, has recognized growth coming out of the pandemic. Alaska is not. We've been stymied in, in economic growth for a decade. Yeah, we're we're a people that's focused solely on oil, and we don't control whether we get to drill more oil. Right. We have got to recognize that is that for the health of the state, we have to start talking about diversification of our economic engine if we want to maintain what we have, or even yeah. grow into the future. Well, that's the problem. The party never ends, according to these people, and there's always more road to kick the can down. Um, we were in a recession before we went into the pandemic and we're just continuing that same trend and it all is based at this point on excess government spending. Uh, Representative Ben Carpenter is our guest. we got one final segment dead ahead. We're going to talk about the budget, the turducken, the no-win scenario that they painted us into and we'll continue this discussions with Representative Ben Carpenter up next. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Uh, continuing now, Ben Carpenter is our guest. I didn't want to get too far into the whole uh, uh, budget thing because I, uh, Ben, I just, you know, and, and, Maybe it's just whatever little naivete I have. I feel like I'm pretty cynical on most of this stuff, but it, it just the naivete of saying, I can't believe that these people can't see the handwriting on the wall, that they can't see that the bridge is out, you know, that the, the, the train is rolling towards the chasm and they just they. I, and so at some point you've got to ask, is it willful blindness? Is it just, well, I'm only here for a short time, so it doesn't really matter what happens between now and the time I leave a kind of thing. Uh, I mean, how could people not how could people not see the disaster that's approaching? One of the one of the things that I've seen down here is that some members of this body define our economy as the government spend. There isn't an awareness that there needs to be wealth right. in order to sustain a government. 
And that wealth isn't generated, isn't created by government. We just see what happens every year, which is the, the annual budget, and we see money flowing in. And that's, that's what we define as the economy. We don't understand anything different. Right. There is no private economy in their mind. The whole thing is is wrapped up around. Yeah. If the government is thriving, then we, of course, are thriving is what they're thinking. That's that's it. And so there's not a focus on growing small business in the state of Alaska. There's just not not in the legislature. Right. It isn't it isn't important to us deciding how we're going to spend oil money or corporate income tax money or federal money or permanent fund earnings. It doesn't, it, it doesn't tie into that. So the, the economic problem that we have, the decisions that need to be made in order to um, incentivize growth, economic growth in the non-oil economy, aren't, they don't rise to the level of uh, who cares? We don't, we don't need to deal with that because it doesn't impact our decisions with making, um, de- defining what we need to spend on the budget. And honestly, there are people who define government spending as the economy. That is, I'm not exaggerating. They just see the government, the budget as the economy. It is surreal. It is surreal. I mean, your heavy sigh at the beginning of your answer pretty much said it all. I mean, how can they not see the forest for the trees. I mean, at this point, they're just so focused, hyper-focused on making sure that government spend is okay, not understanding the symbiotic relationship between the two. Well, part of it, of course, is the disconnect in Alaska specifically because of oil revenues and the fact that all those revenues flow directly to the state. That's part and parcel of it. But again, the eventual, even if they, even if they just think that, the eventuality is it's going to come crashing down around their ears because eventually somebody else is going to have to pay for it. They will run out of OPM, other people's money, and it'll be a new tax. It'll be something else. And if we wait till that long, it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. You, you we're basically setting ourselves up to have a service industry for government. That's and that's kind of what we've said for years. The only people, you know, well, the last what was the old joke about well, the last people in Alaska, please shut their lights out and shut the lights off on the way out. Well, there will be there'll still be people here, but every industry, every everything in the private sector will all have to do with just basically servicing government and government employees in the long run. There will be no entrepreneurship because there's no mechanism to to support that and keep that rolling. It's um I mean, I just I just find it astonishing the willful blindness of folks down there in and and especially some of the newer folks who are coming. Maybe they just got bamboozled. Maybe they just been, you know, by the bright lights and everything else. They're just they bought into it. But I just cannot imagine that that this fiscally works out, especially, again, this this whole change to the to the spending limit. I think we've got the majority of our caucus that does want to do something. They recognize the problem. Um, I think the majority of our caucus does. There are some members of the minority in the House that do. That that number just isn't large enough yet to be able to stay focused on getting a fiscal plan or components of a fiscal plan through. And we'll see here. We'll see in the next couple of days those people who um, – want to do the hard thing, stay here until we can get it done and use the use the budget as leverage. Because really that's all that's left to us is to use some sort of leverage to force us to come to the table and have a conversation. Right. If, if we're not willing to do that, then 
we'll kick the can down the road to the next session and we'll we'll start over again start all <laughs> yeah i mean uh, brian is probably right i used the term symbiotic and the actual term is probably parasitic that's probably a better term for what's going on i mean there is a relationship between the problem the public and the private sector but it is more parasitic than symbiotic and unfortunately the parasite is eating the host that's what's going on right now and unfortunately we have we just don't seem to have the political will to stop it all all right we're coming up on it one final segment here dead ahead the michael duke show common sense liberty-based free thinking radio like it share like it share like it follow do all that stuff youtube etc let's go Okay, we are wrapping things up. One final segment here on the program this morning. Our guest is Representative Ben Carpenter, who is the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. We just talked about the fiscal plan and all the pieces and how it's come to an abrupt halt based on the belief by many uh, in the legislature, it would seem, that the public or the public economy is the only economy as long as the government economy is doing well the state's doing well in their minds unfortunately they've forgotten the lessons of history and basic economics and the fact that the public economy is really uh should be uh subservient to the private economy overall but let's talk a little bit here about the last few days of the session uh ben let's talk about the turducken um, now we were told that that wasn't going to happen, right? We were told, oh no, no. And then we were told since the Senate finance committee has held the budget in their committee for over, well, almost a month. Oh, that nothing's going to, but I, I mean, I called this last week. I said, they're going to drop it at the end of the week and they're going to turn it over and basically say, take it or leave it. And that's exactly what they've done. So they have presented you with a big stinky pile of stuff and said, swallow it down or else it's all your fault. I mean, wh wh what's the reaction been from your advisory committee? I mean, the House uh, of Representatives. Well, I mean, it's easy to say with 2020 hindsight uh, that we saw this coming. Uh, it was clear to me on November 8th or shortly thereafter when we know knew what the election results were that, that we were going to have a challenge with having any sort of uh, um, sane budget come through. Um, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to be in this position where the budget is just going to be dropped in our lap and we don't get the say at the end that we're supposed to have by our rules. It really is a corruption of, of good governance of, of the rules and the way that we've agreed to, um, participate in this, in this self-government peacefully with each other. We've got rules in place that say that we're supposed to come together in a conference committee and hammer out our differences. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that because the Senate, the majority in the Senate has said, well, we don't want to have a conference committee, so we're not going to have one. We'll just wait until the very last minute and we'll kick the budget over to you. And there's just no time to have a conference committee because we didn't want to have one. And then you'll just have to take it or leave it. And it is, it is incredibly disrespectful incredibly we're we're duly elected members of the legislature and certain members of the senate are, are treating us like we're just advisors right and it's it's 
insulting. Well, I mean, again, you were there. Were, this is printed in the paper. I mean, this is he is on record as saying he wasn't going to do this turducken thing. And yet they did it again. Uh, and again, they're going to try and lay this all at your feet. I mean, I'm going to uh, let me lay it out what I think is going to happen. And you could tell me how close do you think that I am that they're going to they've pushed this over to the House. It's a take it or leave it. Their committee substitute. They got the whole thing. They're like, OK, here's what it is. Take it or leave it. You guys are going to basically say, mm, no, this is not how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to have a conference committee. We're supposed to work it out. They're going to hold a press conference to say we passed our budget. The House is they're the ones dragging their feet. If there's a shutdown, it's their fault. And so we're we're white as the driven snow and we're going to do it. Even though the House had their budget finished over a month ago and turned over, we've drug our feet to the last couple of days. But it's their fault now because they just won't accept what we say. Do you think I'm wrong? Is that how it's going to play out? I think that's exactly it. And to, to add insult to injury, the um, finance co-chair for operating budget changed the structure of our um, budget with regard to the other committee that I chair, that's the Legislative Budget and Audit Committee. Legislative Budget and Audit, because it's overseeing the audit function that's supposed to be independent of our decision-making and our, our finances independent, he decided to take that appropriation and move it underneath the Legislative Operating Budget, which is uh, the purview of the um, presiding officers. And so that leg legislative budget and audit money that is associated with audits and uh, hiring uh, individuals to do studies or, or um, accountants, et cetera. consultant, consultant yeah. works and that type of thing. All of that money is now structurally moved underneath the operating budget and is is um, it's a it's a slap in the face because we've got a power sharing agreement between legislative budget and audit and our. Leg legislative council for the running of the legislature and what the senate has basically done is said okay well we don't we don't really care what's going on in lbna right now we don't care for it and so we're going to just move the money underneath the legislative uh, budget uh, uh, legislative budget and we'll be able to control those monies so we're basically saying that we want to control more so they basically took the watchdog the Legislative Budget and Audit Committee, which is supposed to be independent, and they put all the funding underneath the thumbs of the leadership of the House and the Senate and basically say, now we have control of you. And if you don't like what you don't if we don't like what you're putting out, we'll just turn the funding off. And so no more auditing, no more anything else, because you can't you can't, you can't share money between appropriations. And that's why it was remained its, its separate entity. But as soon as you combine one appropriation underneath another, then you can transfer within the allocations of that single appropriation. And so structurally, basically the message is being sent that uh, legislative budget and audit better toe the line or we're just going to take your money away. From what is supposed to be an independent body that is basically making sure what the legislature is doing is correct, uh, which is, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's corrupt. It's, it's, it's malfeasance. It's yeah. Corrupt to the process that's supposed to be here. Yeah, that's malfeasance. And I don't see how that can pass legal muster, quite honestly, uh, in that regards, especially since it was set up as 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 to be an independent body. I don't see how that can. There's got to be a legal challenge in that somewhere along the line. But the legislature can't sue itself. I mean, we're not going to yeah. go to the courts and, and sue ourselves. Yeah. Um, 
So they're gonna they've laid this steaming pile in your lap, and now you're basically I don't I don't see it has the I know Shreggy is he he's getting quoted left and right as saying well maybe well maybe uh, all the legislators that I've talked to in the House have basically said not only no but hell no. So do we end up with just ten days? Do you think, or are we gonna be coming to a full? It comes down to a couple members of my caucus agreeing to the. Um, com, uh, concurrence. Concurrence. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, you, ju- you do the math. There's 16, 16 uh, minority members. You got um, Representative Eastman, who's out on his own and not in the minority. So that's seventeen. And then you've got a certain number of people within our caucus. You can do the math. Which ones are going to vote for concurrence and and send us home with the with the Senate's version of a budget or? Or not. Well, and that's and what part you're going to see within the next 24 to 48 hours. Part of that plays out in the capital budget, too, doesn't it? Because there's some projects in there that may be too juicy for some of these legislators to say, well, I'll just concur because I've got I'm bringing home the bacon for my people. You can't just nod on radio, but he's nodding. So just so the folks know that he's nodding, he doesn't want to say anything on that. Uh, so, uh, do you? I mean, if you were a Vegas gambling man, what would you say? Yes to concurrence, no to concurrence. Ten days, thirty days. What do you think? What is the governor going to do? I mean, what what are you hearing? Well, I, I personally think that the odds are very great that we're going to have a concurrence with the Senate. I think that's likely to happen, but I think that. Um, even if we pass the budget in that manner, we are likely to still have a special session because the governor is really adamant that he have his carbon bills. And I think he's going to call us back solely for that. Even if the budget got passed, he's going to call us back to work on the carbon bills. Do you see him? Because he was, of course, uh, very much in favor of the statutory and then the 50-50 PFD now. Do you see him vetoing any part of the bill or any part of that? to come back and bring it back? Or, I mean, what's your feeling on that? I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wish I could, I wish I could gauge better what's coming out of the executive branch. I just, I just don't know. We're down to the last two minutes here, Ben. So I want to give you the final bite of the apple, so to speak for the listeners on radio. What, um, you know, what we should be expecting. Is there apps? Is there anything we can do or, is this just is this half of the session done and we need to be focusing on next year already? Yep. I mean, if you wanted to influence the next uh, couple of 48 hours, then I would just say call your legislator and, and tell them to do whatever you can to to get some long term fiscal stability done with the state. And if that includes shutting down the government, then then that's what it takes. Then then do it. If that message is sent by enough Alaskans, then then we can go and, and do that because we'll feel better about ourselves, but I'm going to continue pressing on. I, I put two, put forward two new bills at the end of the session that we'll take up in the next, um, next session, next January. One of them is uh, HB 190 and the other is HB 194. And, and these are bills that are, that are looked at, looking at the, how do you get better government? And um, the 190 is a, a Alaska sunset commission. It's modeled after the sunset commission that exists in Texas. And it basically um, allows the allows the governor, the presiding officers, to appoint um, members of the public to review with statutory authority, review the 
the administration, our, remember, review our government and figure out where we want to make some changes and recommend those changes to the legislature. And it's been wildly successful since 1977 in Texas. And then the other HB 194 that we're gonna take up is gonna be focused on how do we do business better within the legislature. It's a, it's a rewrite of our um, Executive Budget Act that requires better measurement of our, um, of our government institutions, our, our entities that we fund, and tying that back into the um, into the budget process that we that we have, right? We don't really talk too much ben. about results when we're, we're in our budget process. So I'm I'm moving forward with with solutions and that's all you can do right now. Ben Carpenter, Ben Carpenter, our guest, the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. We'll see you tomorrow, folks. Uh, ben, I know you got uh, other things going on, but I just uh, one final bite here. Um, Kevin says, and I don't know how this sounds, but Kevin says, keep in mind that any vote for concurrence is because we do not have a binding caucus. Everyone's free to vote their way their districts want them to. This is what it looks like. So does that mean that the non-binding caucus was a good thing or a bad thing, Ben? I mean, does the elimination of the binding caucus, again, we're the only state that has it, but I mean, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Or is this just how the process is supposed to work out? What are your thoughts on that? I'm I'm still not in favor of a binding caucus. I, I think that's a um, archaic thing to to expect of members. Now I am in favor of a, a majority caucus deciding what their priorities are with a with a majority vote and the majority of that caucus moving forward with whatever that caucus feels is is its priorities and right. and bringing those things forward. But that doesn't mean that you. That you're going to um, twist people's arms by saying we're going to kick you out of the caucus if you're not supporting it. I mean, it just that doesn't make sense. Right. You got to you got to you've got to work with people and bring them along. I agree. I mean, I think again, it's more painful, it's messier, but I think it's still the right thing. You know, the right thing is not always easy to do, but it's still the right thing in the long run. Um, and I hope it's the right form of leadership. Yeah, I mean, I hope that. I mean, I kind of hope you're wrong that the concurrence thing is going to happen, but I kind of agree with you that with all the shiny new toys laid out and the capital budget and everything else, it's going to be fairly easy for that to happen. Um, I mean, hot, hot mess, man. This is this is just betrayal at every level. And then they smile. They smile while they do it, and then they get rewarded for it. And that just burns me up. But it is what it is. It's, it's survivor it's survivor meets junior high That's it, what is. it is oh absolutely survivor meets junior high is a perfect example of what we got going on all right ben well i appreciate you coming on keep us in the loop if anything changes uh whatever shoot me a text let me know thank you for coming on board this morning we'll see you later michael always well, a pleasure yeah, it's always good to talk with you my friend thank you for being part of it today okay folks we're out of time tomorrow's another day just, I knew this was going to happen. I just knew it was going to happen. So frustrating. But this is life in the big city, apparently. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Have a great day.
We've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. 